All right, Esther, part two here tonight. 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, Therefore, since we have so, such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing an end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. This veil... So many times we hear that this veil is simply the Old Testament, and of which the book of Esther is in, obviously. And we hear people say things like this, that as long as that veil remains, that Old Testament, then you can't see. You can't see Jesus. So you have to remove the veil of the Old Testament so that you can see Jesus. I mean, have any of you kind of understood it that way in a sense in the past? Okay, I'm not alone. All right, good. So what I want you to see, though, is that is a lack of understanding. What it is saying is this, ultimately, with Christ, the Old Testament is what's unveiled. The law is what is unveiled in Christ. You see, Moses was shining and he had the glory of God. The glory of the law was there. But the Israelites, uh, without Christ, he had to put a veil because they couldn't understand the glory of the law. And they had to understand it through a veiled face. But when Christ comes, that veil is removed so that you can see the glory of the law. That is the difference of obeying the law under a legalistic perspective of thou shalt, thou shalt not, and if you want to be a good Christian, you better be doing this or not doing that. But in Christ, then the glory of the law is this is a blessing. I want to obey it. Just like we said, the promise of the new covenant was I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will write my law on their minds and in their hearts. Not, I will get rid of it, but he was going to move it from stone and put it in our hearts. That is what this means. And that too, since Esther is in the Old Testament, means to understand the book of Esther, you have to Look at it through the eyes of Jesus. And then the glory of it will be revealed. Make sense? So it, so it really works both ways. How the, you know, the modern Jew just can't understand what's in the New Testament. Uh, I would argue that the modern Christian doesn't get what's in the Old Testament. Like there's just a disconnect. Yeah, that is true. It does go both ways. The Jews can't understand the Old Testament because without Christ, it's veiled. Only in Christ is it revealed. But for us as Christians, that we don't understand the Old Testament because we've misunderstood this and said, in Christ, it's thrown away. Yeah. So, 
I know I was talking to some people last week and, you know, saying, not sure if this whole allegory is quite, if I'm going to buy into that yet. And I said, I get it because that's how I was when we first started going through this. And the more I got into it, the more I was convinced this is an allegory of Jesus Christ, a parable of the kingdom of God. And so I think the deeper we get into this book, you will see, wow, this is about Jesus. Well, yeah, maybe a parable isn't the best way to put it, but parable-like. It really did happen, but it's a allegory of reality. So... Um, when we look at it through the, with an unveiled face, I think it will become a lot more clear. So, just to remind you where we were last week to keep the context. Matthew 22 and Esther 1 fit perfectly. Now getting us to chapter 2. When King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Well, when Vashti was removed last week, it was by decree of the law. Remember he said, what must we do? What does the law say we should do when somebody disobeys the king? The same way we are judged. Then a letter was sent out to all the kingdoms telling men to rise up to be leaders in their home and that they had to have order in their house. So now we're presented here that a search is made not just for anybody but beautiful young virgins for the king. Now, on the physical end of that, that makes sense. But on the spiritual, we have to understand that when Jesus came and his own rejected him, those whom he first called, the Jews, rejected him, who did he go out for? He went out to the street corners. He went out to everybody looking for pure virgins. Remember in the wedding banquet? If you got in there, he says, wait a minute, how did you get in here without your clothes on? Without your white robes? Right? That's in Matthew 22. He wasn't just going out to the street corners and, hey, everybody's welcome. Come one, come all. We don't care if you're living in sin or not. He says, no, 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 no. How did you get in here without a white robe on? And they take that man and they drag him out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when we talk about going out to the street corners, it isn't everybody. It's everybody that's willing to submit. Willing to wear that white robe. And biblically, the Bible says those white robes stand for the righteous acts of the saints. It says that in Revelation chapter 19. So people who are obedient to the king. Now, this beautiful young virgin is also kind of significant because as you're going to see, we are to be presented to Christ as pure virgins. We see that in Revelation. Right? I think I've got that verse coming up, but if not, Revelation. 
So verse 3, it says, Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So in looking for a replacement, we see this a second time mentioned. Not only a beautiful, pure virgin, but one who pleases the king. Well, what pleases the king? Obedience. Someone who's going to listen to me when I call. Back to this parable. Verse 9, so go out to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servant went out to the streets, gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. So first we see the bad and the good are called, right? Later you're going to see one seems to have snuck in. The bad apparently don't come outside of one that tried to get in and maybe was kind of a, a poser, you might say, right? Uh, the, the wedding crasher, exactly. Well, there's going to happen that too. I mean, a lot of these women, are some of them are probably don't have pure motives, but only one is going to be selected among all of these women that Esther is going to be a part of. Verse 3, let them be placed under the care of Haggai, I guess we read this, who pleases the king. I want to talk a little bit more about what pleases the king. Deuteronomy 5, verse 29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Deuteronomy 5, God speaking. What pleases God? Those that will do what he says. Now, pleasing God and being able to, like, there's a difference between pleasing God and earning your salvation. You can't be good enough to earn your salvation. But you can still please the king. Ecclesiastes 12:13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. John 14:15. If you love me, keep my commands. This is how we have a relationship with God. Our king is obedience. It's not how you get saved. It's once you're saved, this is how you please the king. Once you've been called, once you've been chosen, once you've been brought in, now you please the king. So, we can look in Isaiah 56 even more, and I think it gets a little more specific. This is what the Lord says, not Brian. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation, by the way, that's Yeshua, God's salvation, is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner, that would be like a Gentile, who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people 
and let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths and chooses what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. This passage describes what pleases the king right here. And these Gentiles, that's us. Keep in mind Isaiah 56. This is a chapter, go look at it. It's dealing kind of like end times, talking about the new heavens and the new earth being created, all of this kind of stuff. Side note, I've talked about this before, but I just find this beautiful. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts? The Ethiopian eunuch is trotting along in his chariot, and he's reading Isaiah 53. He doesn't understand what he's saying. Philip comes running alongside. Hey, how you doing? You understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless somebody take, you know, tells me? And he hops up in the chariot, and he explains to the Ethiopian eunuch Jesus from Isaiah 53. And basically he talks about baptism. The Ethiopian eunuch says, well, there's some water. What's to keep me from being baptized? So they stop the chariot. They get down. They baptize the guy. And then all of a sudden, Philip, boom, gone. I'll bet that Ethiopian eunuch got back up in his chariot so excited and kept reading. And as he kept reading, he ran into this verse right here. Do not, okay, let a foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, he will exclude me from his people. That don't let a eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. I'm not worth anything. It's like Philip was giving or pointing out to this Ethiopian eunuch a love letter from God right there. And I absolutely love that connection. But anyway, that's a side note. Paul in Romans actually pulls from this uh, passage here in Isaiah to show that Jesus would be the one to reveal God's righteousness. Uh, in Romans 5 he says, And now a righteousness apart from God has been revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. A righteousness apart from the law. And this is kind of what he's saying here, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. That was Yeshua. That is the righteousness of God that was revealed. Well, anyway, it is a righteousness that is by faith, Paul says there in Romans chapter 5. Okay? It isn't the law being set aside. It's not a righteousness uh, because of the law. It's a righteousness apart from the law. It's a righteousness from Jesus. But the law is not thrown away. It's just that it's not the righteousness that comes from the law. Big difference. So anyway, of all of these things that he brings in here, it's interesting of the Ten Commandments, which ones he brings in. The Sabbath. Desecrating the Sabbath. And the other interesting thing here is it says to them who keep 
the commandments of God. He is going to do what? He's going to, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial better than, you know, a name better than the sons and daughters. So to those who keep the, ta- uh, the Sabbath, who please the king, where do they get to go? Inside the temple. Within the walls of the temple. In God's presence. Where is Esther going to be brought into? Because she pleases the king. Inside the king's presence. And it says that she's going to have a name better than sons and daughters. Or at least these people who please the king. What's going to happen with Hadassah? She is going to then be called Esther, which means star. And remember, as we talked about last week in Daniel, it says those who who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. So Hadassah gets a new name. She's brought into the presence of God or the king because she pleases the king. That's what's supposed to happen to us. When we please the king, we will be brought into his presence and you will get a new name. Hebrews 5.9 And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. For who? For everybody who wants him? For everybody who just says his name? For everybody who goes to church? For everybody who prays at night? Well, maybe if for all who obey him are a part of that. Doesn't mean they're going to be perfect in obedience, but they're going to have a heart to obey him. This is the exact opposite of Vashti, who, as we said last week, is a picture of the rebellious church. So verse 5 continues, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Interesting that it has to point out a Jew. Why is that there? You will find that out later. This is very important. So just maybe underline it for now. I'm not going to deal with it much right now. Son of Jair the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter, when her father and mother died. So this is the only time you're going to see Hadassah, which means myrtle. Okay, so Hadassah, the beautiful name of myrtle. <laughs> anyway, what's myrtle mean? I think myrtle is like a myrtle tree, or so. Anyway, it's as I said, Esther means star. It continues in verse eight when the king's order and the edict had been proclaimed. Many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. So now we see that she's pleasing this one main servant of the king. 
we read in the New Testament about you know grieving the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Basically, in a sense, you might say the servant of the king. So, of all the women, Esther gains favor with this special custodian of the king. And as a result of that favor being received, she is separated from all the other women. Separated from all the rest. I think this is a picture of Israel. Israel ultimately has been set apart from all the rest. Even, even today in the church. Okay, I believe I'm a Jew spiritually because I have been grafted into the Jewish covenant. I have become native-born Israel. But even with that, if there is a Jew that believes in Jesus, I don't know all of the differences. I don't understand it all. All I know is there is a difference. There is a set-apartness if that's a word. Because in Romans it says, when punishment comes, it will come first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. But there will be glory, honor, and peace first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So somehow there is a separation of Jew and Gentile to this day. We even read in Romans is it 10 where it says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. Israel... The Jew has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in. And then, as it is written, all Israel will be saved. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. They're separated. So even though I know that there are verses that talk about, yes, I'm a Jew because I believe in Jesus. That's what a Jew, true Jew is. There's still some sort of separation. And Esther is separated and set apart from the rest. Even our second president, John Adams, understood that Israel was set apart. All you have to do is study history and you can see Israel has been set apart. There is no way anybody could have survived what the Jews have survived being such a small nation, a small country, having so many enemies, absolutely every single country around them hating them. That's what's going on right now in the news. This whole thing with Hamas and the Palestinians. Now, our media says, oh, this is the, the poor Palestinians, and the Jews are oppressing them. I'm sorry, that is like a bunch of propaganda. What's happening, I mean, if... All of a sudden, some country started throwing a thousand bombs into Nebraska. Do you think that we would have the right to go and attack that country who was bombing us? Absolutely. That is exactly what's happening in Israel right now. They are not the instigators of this. Now, I am not saying that there aren't some real political issues there, and I am not saying that there aren't Christian Palestinians that are caught in the middle of some of this. I'm not even saying that there aren't some Jews that have bitterness and hatred that is ungodly. That's all true. But let me tell you, the politics of this is not what we hear in the media. By all reason, Israel should have been wiped off of the face of the earth a long time ago. The pogroms, the Holocaust, 
I mean, all throughout history. But anyway, John Adams said, I will insist the Hebrews have contributed more to civilized men than any other nation. If I was an atheist and believed in blind eternal fate, I should still believe that fate had ordained the Jews to be the most essential instrument for civilizing the nations. They are the most glorious nation that ever inhabited this earth. Go look at how many Nobel Prizes have been won by Jews, most of them. They have contributed to society in great ways. He continues, The Romans and their empire were but a bubble in comparison to the Jews. They were a world power. They have given religion to three quarters of the globe and have influenced the affairs of mankind more and more happily than any other nation, ancient or modern. Even the Bible predicted that the world would take note of the Jews. It says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. In Lamentations 20, verse 26, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from nations to be my own. That's what's happening here with Esther. The king is saying, I'm going to set you apart. You are going to influence the world. And Esther will. So that's what we're seeing. Verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. It's interesting that her nationality was not to be revealed. Do you know that that was the case here in America? A lot of Jews hid their nationality because of the persecution. Same reason Esther was hiding her nationality. Even today, there are many hidden Jews, you might say, with the lost ten tribes, too. There can be that picture, because there were twelve tribes of Israel, when Solomon was king, all twelve, this and two of my toes, were together as one. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes king, and because of some poor, unwise decisions, ten tribes go off, and two tribes stick with him, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. These ten tribes that went off later are captured by Assyria, assimilated into the culture, and they become known as the Samaritans and just lost. So when Jesus came, you primarily had two tribes. Now, there were some when the Assyrians came, some of them jumped, shipped, and came over. And so we see, you know, some are from the tribe of Asher. But primarily, as far as any numbers go, it was Judah and Benjamin were the, the tribes left when Jesus came. So still to this day, there is what are called the lost tribes of Israel, these ten tribes. And we see remnants of them in different countries and things like that where you find this, this native jungle society, and yet they have things that are very similar to biblical festivals. And a lot of people think these are some of the lost tribes that you know, kept some of those little remnants of their Jewish heritage. But... Anyway, point being is that there's still a hidden 
aspect to this day. You don't even know who, who Jews are fully. These Samaritans as well, just maybe, I'm not going to go there, but if you look in Genesis chapter 49, verse 18, it talks about when uh, Jacob is blessing his children. When he gets to Ephraim, he says, you will become a multitude of nations. That's the prophecy of the blessing given to that son of Israel. You will become a multitude of nations. That Hebrew word, nations, is goyim. That's Gentiles. It literally reads, Ephraim would become a multitude of Gentiles. Those lost ten tribes become known as the tribes of Ephraim. So when you read in Scripture in the Old Testament, Ephraim, the tribes of Ephraim, is talking about those ten tribes most times. And so it's interesting that way back in Genesis 49, it was prophesied that they would become Gentiles. The Samaritans in Jesus' day were considered Gentiles. Jews hated them. So point being, some of you Gentiles could be Jews from the lost tribes. Now I know I've talked about this before with some of you anyway. There are those people today who think that if you believe in Jesus today, you probably are one of those lost tribes because God has come out. Remember what Jesus says? His own words. He says, I have come only for... Anybody know? Can finish that? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what Jesus said. And so it seems that a lot of people, and I do believe a lot of people who are coming to Christ probably are of the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. But I don't believe just because you are that means. I think there's also, remember, he, he even says that I have other sheep that are not of this pen. Jesus says that too. I mean, again, this could be a whole message in itself. But what I want you to see is, is that Jesus says, I, will only come for the, I have only come to the lost sheep of Israel. That was his primary goal, to bring the ten tribes back. And this is why we see many, many, many scripture verses in the Old Testament making that promise. That you will take the stick of Ephraim in one hand, the stick of, of uh, Judah in the other, he will put them together, and they will become one in his hand again. All twelve tribes united again. That is part of God's goal, is to unite those twelve tribes again. All right. So anyway... A little side note there, but nonetheless, there are hidden Jews even today. Um, I also think here there are scales on the eyes of the world when it comes to Israel, which is why we see the propaganda about what's going on right now, uh, because many of them think, what right do the Jews have? What, what, what right do those Jews have in Israel right now to that land? That's Palestinian land. No, that was land God gave them. Technically, it is the only country that has been given land by God. Yeah, they're the only ones that really could say this is our land. So uh, it, it is just kind of interesting. Um, Mordecai, you're going to see, I'm just going to give it away for now. He's a picture of Jesus. Mordecai is going to keep a close eye on Esther, always concerned about her affairs here, every day. Every day. He walked back and forth near the courtyard. Why? To find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Well, God keeps a close watch on us and Israel, 
as well. There are verses in the Old Testament that talk about his eyes never leaving Jerusalem. Right? His eyes are always on that place. Um, Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will always keep an eye on you. First Peter tells us, casting all cares upon him. Why? For he cares for you, just like Mordecai was caring for Esther. Because she was an orphan. That's what we are without God. What's that? Yep, yep. We have now become sons of God, just like Esther became a daughter of Mordecai. Esther had not revealed her nationality, and I think that is part of the reason why, is because as the persecution from the physical sense, but a spiritual sense, because we don't know, even to this day, all the Jews that are out there. But there's a day coming when that will be revealed. Verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Can you imagine how ugly they must have been to get that, to make it last that long? Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. So, this is simply the custom of the Persians, but it's pointed out for a reason. And I think, especially when you see words like myrrh and perfume, because if you're immersed in Scripture, those words kind of pop out at you. Myrrh, perfume, what is that associated with? Exodus 30. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, so fragrances, uh, a fragrant calamus, 500 shekels of cassia, and all of these down, it says, the work of a perfumer. It will be a sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the covenant of the law. So I think that this time of preparation with oil and myrrh that Esther is going through is all about what was going on here. Preparation to meet the king. Before you could go into the temple, before you had, you had this fragrant incense that was all a prep before you could meet King God in the tabernacle. Esther's being prepared to meet her king. It continues in 2 Corinthians 5, 2. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed and said with our heavenly dwelling, because when we're clothed, we'll not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has prepared us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That's why we celebrate Shavuot. That spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That spirit is in preparation of us to meet our king. 
And that's what this is all about, being joined to our king, being clothed in righteousness. We're being prepared. Ephesians 1.13, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So there's a specific time of preparation and anointing going on here in Esther. Just like for us, there is a specific time of our preparation. There is a deposit given until the redemption comes. Well, Esther is being prepared until she is going to be the one selected out and redeemed. We are going to be prepared until that day of redemption and we are taken out to be in the presence of God as well. 2 Timothy 2.21, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he basically uh, uh, unholy things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Revelation 8, 6, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Even the angels, before the end, they are doing prep work. Revelation 21, then I saw, or then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, the church, the bride, is being prepared to be presented to her husband as a pure virgin, holy and blameless, adorned with righteousness, adorned with good works. And so this treatment, this beauty treatment, to get ready for the king, that's our efforts of trying to follow God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So a great time to celebrate Shavuot tomorrow. Preparation. What's that? Seven maids. Yep, and again, there's seven angels, uh, seven trumpets, all doing the prep work. Ephesians 5:26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Again, we're talking about a husband and a wife, which is really the God and His bride, the church, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That is what Esther is being prepared for, to be holy, without blemish, pure, fragrant. We are the fragrance of Christ. I mean, I could go on and on with verses. So back to Esther here, getting to where we need to wrap up. Verse 13, and this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Two specific things 
to go meet the king. Number one, you have to be called, and number two, you have to please him. Sound familiar? Similar to the parable of the talents that we were looking at. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. The king was pleased. They were called and they did well. Isaiah 43, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by our name. You are mine. So the same conditions Esther had to meet the king, we have. We have to be called by the king. He says, you are mine. You can't come to him unless the father draws him or unless you go through Jesus, right? And you have to be called. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle uh, Abihail to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. In other words, she did nothing that didn't line up with the servant. We should do nothing that doesn't line up with the Holy Spirit. His leading, the word of God. And it goes on, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. That word favor, hasad, hased, it's that uh, grace, the grace of God is the favor of God. Um, we see Daniel, God he says that he had favor Right? We see Joseph was given favor. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all were given favor. Israel has favor. Let me tell you something. You have favor with God. And this is what Esther has. A picture of the church. Favor. Can you see? We're hardly reading like a verse without seeing a connection here. And this is the way the whole book of Esther is going to go. Is that incredible? Verse 17, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any other women. God is attracted to his church more than anybody else. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. Israel is set apart. There is no other nation. They are his treasured possession. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of of Vashti. So Vashti is replaced by the one who was given favor. Those who rejected him, the Jews that rejected him, who are not Jews at all, are replaced by those who will accept the call. Psalm 84:11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Uh, another one that found grace to uh, favor was Noah. Noah found grace in the sight of God. Why? Uh, Genesis 7.1 says, because he was righteous. This is the same kind of thing going on here. 
Closing out Jude 1.4. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There are ungodly people, people like Vashti, who take the grace of God, the grace of the king, who wanted to just say, come here, let me show you off. And she says, no, for whatever reason. Turns the grace of the king into lewdness. 1 Peter 5, 5, submit to God, resist the devil. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Esther is humble, and she receives grace. She's listening to her father, Mordecai, obeying him, submitting to him. Following what he says, James 4, 6, but he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Or Hebrews 4, 16, when he talked about, therefore let us come boldly to the throne of God, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in, to, to help in time of need. So I could go on and on about all of that. That is a picture of Esther. Israel, the church who will humbly follow. And when you do, you receive the grace of God. If you do not humbly follow, God will resist the proud. Like Vashti, you will be kicked out of the kingdom. You will lose your place. And that is what we see with Esther.